0: Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here, Uh, looking forward to uh, speaking with Yuki Terada, who's the research and standards editor at Edutopia. Yuki does really interesting work, and I'd recommend uh, him as someone uh, for you to follow. Uh, We're going to talk to him a little bit more about his uh, his job and the nature of uh, vetting the research that Edutopia uh, does chooses to share out with uh with its audience of educators um but uh the main reason why we brought uh, Yuki on is that he did a really nice uh summary of the research uh educational research in 2019 that uh Dan and I did a show on uh, at the end of uh 2019 got really good uptake and it allowed me to reach out to Yuki and uh, and lo and behold, we were able to, to book him for the show. So, uh, so Yuki, uh, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, and um, can you begin by talking a little bit about uh, Edutopia and uh, what Edutopia's mission is and how educational research comes to bear on the mission?
1: Yeah, so Edutopia is an educational nonprofit. And our main goal is to transform K-12 education to help uh, all students succeed. Uh, not just succeed in the classroom, but also succeed outside the classroom um, uh, in, in their careers, in their lives as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way we do that is by producing uh, content for uh, educators uh, to listen to and to read. Uh, so most of what we most of what we do, most of our articles are written by teachers um, mm-hmm. who share uh, practices that they find effective. And mm-hmm. behind the scenes. Um, we have a whole team of editors and uh, we have me, our research editor, um, who vets everything to make sure that what uh, we're sharing is vetted and high quality.
0: Yeah. Um, and, uh, and in 2020, because it is 2020 now, uh, <laughs> you know, it's really easy to share something that seems interesting based on a headline or based on uh, something that you think might get clicks or likes or shares. And it's not always based on evidence-based research. And as I understand your job for Edutopia is to make sure that uh, whatever is shared out is actually uh, based on real science. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like and how that can be challenging uh, based on the types of, types of articles, types of research that, uh, that your writers and your audience is interested in?
1: Yeah, sure. So my background is actually in educational research. Um, I was, I've been at Edutopia for about seven years. I started off as a researcher. Um, so I understand, um, I understand uh, how to design an educational study uh, fairly well. Before this, I was at the Lawrence Hall of Science uh, studying informal science learning. Before that, I was at Berkeley um, uh, for grad and undergrad. Um, so I'm able to to read a research study. I'm able to understand not just you know a research study itself, but also the context, like what what uh, publication is it in, is is it peer reviewed, you know what's the impact factor, um, is it a high quality uh, study, is the research itself high quality. Um, so I take a lot of that training into uh, my job here, where um, I look at um, I look at pretty much every piece of content that we put out. Um, and I make sure that um, if anything goes out, that it's uh, highly vetted and that it is backed by evidence. Um, mm-hmm. Because as we know, you know, teachers are are extremely intelligent. They're very smart and they're very critical because, you know, part of, part of our job as educators is to help students understand how to be critical thinkers. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always expect uh, to be called out if any of the content that we put out isn't Uh, high quality and, Mm -hmm. and has, you know, has a lot of research supporting it.
0: Yeah. And um, interestingly, when we were prepping, uh, you were talking about the mission of Edutopia, which is very much about the practical application of evidence-based research. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like how you, uh, you need to make sure that the research is valid, but then even beyond that, uh, you do need to also vet that the, the application in a classroom is also relevant, which I, involves, I, I imagine, a little bit of critical thinking and, um, and other tools. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, we very, very rarely put out uh, content that is purely about the research because for us, it's about connecting research to practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, one good example of that is our uh, video series, our Schools at Work video series where um, we actually go into schools and classrooms and we film what's working. Um, and behind the scenes, there's a lot of vetting that happens. We, we take a close look at schools, the practices and strategies that are happening at schools and make sure that uh, um, uh, with a high level of confidence, we can say that these practices and strategies actually contribute to the success of the school. That it's not just, you know, like a superstar teacher who can um, pretty much do anything and have mm-hmm. his or her students succeed. That that uh, there's research and there's evidence supporting the actual practice. Because what we want ultimately is for our audience, our teachers to be able to see something on Edutopia and to be able to implement it into their own classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the main goal. So everything we do is kind of pointed at that, uh, at that main goal. Um, mm-hmm. So part of my job isn't just to present research, but to also show how that research can inform uh, good teaching, how, yeah. How research can make you a more uh how how research can help you understand better how students learn um, what learning is and how um classroom practices can be improved
0: yeah and i I will say uh as someone who regularly follows what edutopia is putting out there um while it's it's intended specifically for k-12 a lot of the research is relevant in in a broader set of contexts. so i would say certainly if you're in the k-12 space if you're an educator i would encourage you to check out what edutopia is doing uh track yuki down on twitter and uh and all those things but uh but i'd also say um despite the 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 focus scope of your mission uh, a lot of the research i think has broader application uh to higher ed to informal learning uh and to a lot of the the other uh, topics that we talk about on the show so um so good job by you um we did um showcase uh, at the end of 2019, uh, the uh, article that, that you uh, published uh, on Edutopia about the research highlights from 2019. Had a really interesting conversation. It's a pretty broad survey. And um, we were uh, happy to say that we did cover uh, maybe about half of the, the research uh, topics that, that you were describing in the article. I'd love to hear from your perspective. Uh, you know, maybe looking back a bit at uh, at the year that was, um, what research really resonated the most uh, with you? Where do you, where did you see um, science moving the needle in a way that could actually impact K twelve educators in their classrooms?
1: Yeah, so there are a, a few things that I'm really excited about for for 2019. What happened in 2019? And one of them is looking at the arts um, because for for years and for for decades even, we've heard a lot about why the arts is so important. And we've heard a lot about why arts programs and um, extracurricular uh, art programs are so important for learning. Uh, But what we're seeing now um, is we're we're seeing the reasons why the arts are so important. Um, And one reason why is because it is fundamentally tied to learning. Um, So for example, one of the studies that came out last year um, was looking at the impact of drawing. Um, on learning and how when you draw something, you're more likely to remember it. And um, that sounds, um, so it's not necessarily um, the reason, it's not necessarily that art itself helps learning, but understanding exactly why and the reasons why um, drawing something um, is beneficial. Um, And uh, neuroscience actually sheds a lot of light onto why the arts are important and that's because when you experience something, and when you uh, are trying to learn something, when you encode it in multiple ways, you're more Mm -hmm. likely to remember it. So for example, if you just uh, see something, um, you're much less likely to remember it than if you um, see it and hear it or see it and feel it. Um, Mm -hmm. But one of the kind of the the thing that ties everything together with drawing, uh, kind of the linchpin is the elaborative process. Mm -hmm. So when you see something and you draw it, the actual act of drawing it forces you to elaborate on what it means. Um, and let me kind of uh, give you an example. Um, so the human brain is really efficient. And it's really good at, people are really good at tricking themselves into thinking they know something when they don't. Um, so, for example, if I ask you to, let's say, uh, picture a bicycle. Okay. Uh, picture what a bicycle looks like. And if I ask you to draw it, um, most people, the vast majority of people cannot draw a bicycle correctly. Uh, They, you know, they'll get the basic parts right, you know, the the wheels, the handlebars, the seat. But once you get to, you know, where the crossbar goes, where all the different um, bars go, most people can't actually draw it because we've, even though everyone knows what the bicycle looks like, it's very rare for someone to actually be able to elaborate on what the bicycle actually looks like. It's not until you actually try to design a bicycle and make sure you have it correctly and make sure that it works structurally, that you know if someone's actually sitting on the seat, that it doesn't just fall apart. Um, mm-hmm. It's not until you actually elaborate on the process that you begin to really understand what the bicycle looks like. And once you start to understand that, you know the weight of the seat, um, if the weight isn't evenly distributed across the whole bicycle and you don't have the correct shape, um, uh, Typically, you know, the seat is directly above the, the rear wheel, and then you have um, triangles. You have two sets of triangles that support uh, the handlebar and the both wheels. Uh, mm-hmm. But until you actually like elaborate on that process, you don't really know what a bicycle looks like. Um, so part of what's exciting to me is that we have a better understanding now of uh, not just why the arts are important, but what it actually means to learn something and what it actually means to remember something and mm-hmm. to have a better understanding of what it means to take something from short-term memory to long-term memory and have students actually understand what they're learning instead of just tricking themselves into thinking they understand what they're Mm -hmm.
0: learning. Yeah. And I, you know, just extending what you're talking about, I could see how that would have direct impact on an educator coming up with her lesson plan on either teaching geometry or physics, or, you know, there's plenty of practical applications to the bicycle example uh, that you just put out there. And also there's a bit of an "aha" moment uh, in terms of realizing that when you try to draw a bicycle that you would draw it wrong, like that's an opportunity to learn right there as well, because right. then you can say, yeah. "Well, I see let's see how everyone drew this." Oh, that's interesting. Many of you drew it this way. Let's talk about that. And uh, you could see how um, it's both engaging their creative selves, it's engaging their uh, maybe different aspects of their brain than if they were just leaning back and being lectured at. But it's also a way to sort of engage a class and uh, you know, create sort of that active exchange that, that right. really is, is conducive to learning.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, so one of, the, one of the, I don't think I included this in the article, but one of the more interesting connections to make with art and drawing is that in a way when you draw something, it's kind of like a practice test. And we know that practice tests in general are very effective. Um, for learning we know that you know um, if, if you just uh, you know sit at the front of the classroom and lecture at the students they'll probably forget most of what you say but if you reinforce that learning with practice tests throughout the school year uh, their students are much more likely to, to actually remember what they're trying to learn and one of the reasons for that is because there's a difference between um, encoding memory and decoding memories and when you encode information the goal is to make it stick into long-term memory so that students remember it throughout the school year, not just for, you know, the week, not just, you know, between the day before they study for a test and right after. You don't want them to forget everything they've learned right after. So it's really important not just to help students remember things, but to actually be able to, uh, to make the learning actually stick, to make the mm-hmm. information stick. And mm-hmm. one of the most effective ways to do that is to help them practice um, actually recalling that information periodically, um, mm-hmm. not just once, not just right after a lesson, but throughout the school year. Mm-hmm. So when you, when when someone draws something, um, it's kind of like a mini practice test in a way because you're asking them to not only like look at something, you're asking them not only to like, okay, here's, for example, like a model of the solar system. You know, here are the different planets. You're actually asking them to um, encode it into, into their short-term memories and then to decode it, to recall it, and that the act of doing that actually helps with recall in the future. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, like a lot of things that uh, don't seem connected uh, end up being very connected because we know there are some fundamental mechanisms for how student learn, students learn. Um, yeah. One of which is that it's very easy to think you know something when you don't. And it's very important to not only just teach something once, to te- but to teach it in multiple ways, to teach mm-hmm. it uh, you know, to the practice, to teach it um, Uh, throughout the school year to give students multiple opportunities to learn something.
0: Yeah. And different, uh, different ways of engaging. I I love the example of the arts too, because when you're in your bicycle example, actually a solar system as well, like you're using the artistic instinct to teach science or to teach math, you know, which is why, you know, I'm always a big fan of the, the A in steam, you know, like you, (laughs) like trying to, trying to, uh, Trying to design for an integrated learning experience where, you know, it's not like when you're doing science, you know, you shut off the artistic or visual parts of your brain. If anything, it's better to engage across the different aspects uh, of your brain and your, your, uh, your neuroscience when, uh, when engaging in these types of things. Yeah. Um, one, of the,
1: one of the fascinating examples I recently came across is um, I'm currently researching um, a topic, uh, procrastination. And mm-hmm. I was reading about Leonardo da Vinci um, famous procrastinator known for never finishing a project, but he is, you know, he is well known for, for he was quite well known for his art, but we also know that um, he invented uh, the helicopter and the parachute. Yep. And what sure. I found very interesting was that they actually don't work. They, they're not functional. And the reason mm-hmm. why is because he invented them for the theater. He was inventing props huh. for the theater. So one of the reasons why he, one of the reasons why he invented these things that, that allowed us to better understand kind of like flight and better understand mechanics is because of the arts, because he wasn't inventing them for invention's sake, but he was trying to figure out like how, how, how do the arts, how, how does, hmm. um, how do the arts fit into what I'm trying to
0: develop? Hmm. That's um, fascinating. And, uh, you better finish that article on uh, procrastination because uh, uh, that's a good tease. Um, uh, you, you got you got me with uh, Da Vinci and the arts because uh, that's uh, that's some good stuff. Uh, so, um, any other trends you're noticing just around educational research uh, writ large? Uh, anything? Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. like
1: um, every year or every few years, um, we uh, we gain a better, more nuanced understanding of something that we previously held to be you know, pretty bulletproof and true. And the example of last year in 2019 was the research on summer slide. And, mm-hmm. you know, previously we've seen things like, you know, the marshmallow test, um, learning styles. We see these big ideas um, uh, where I wouldn't necessarily say that they were wrong, but that um, we have a better, more nuanced understanding of them. Um, mm-hmm. And with summer slide, um, it turns out that the summer slide uh, uh, was very much, uh, in a way, manufactured by the test-taking methodology. Um, so, if you can imagine um, ten people taking a test, um, and each test has ten questions, uh, and on average half of the half of the people get you know half of the questions right, you can kind of quantify that. Um, so, you know, the average would be fifty percent, right? Um, but we don't score tests that way. Um, tests are, are usually scored uh, using a weighted uh, system. So the more questions that a student gets right, uh, the harder the questions get. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, so what you're seeing is that when you compare, when you compare two different tests, it, it's not uh, an apples to apples comparison. It can be an apples to oranges comparison depending on what kind of testing methodology is used. So what mm-hmm. we're finding out now is that a lot of the assumptions that we made about the summer slide a lot of the assumptions we made about how tests change over the summer were incorrect. Mm-hmm. And that um, a, a researcher um, can uh, create any kind of gap that they want uh, because uh, it's no longer, it's, it's not really true that the number of questions that a student gets correct, is the score that they get. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's just um, what, what actually ends up happening is that the gap exists uh, pretty early on and it persists mm. uh, so there isn't kind of like a uh, like a widening of the gap over the summer and then the closing of the gap once the school starts once the school mm-hmm. year starts that gap starts you know pretty much in kindergarten and it actually persists and grows slightly larger throughout um, all the way you know through high school um, yeah so I like that yep. we're seeing kind of a more nuanced understanding
0: yeah and of- it, it's sort of a reminder that science continues to Evolve and revise itself, and that as humans, we gravitate to narrative and to almost lore at times. Right. So that you want to tell the story of this research in a way that everybody understands. Uh, and you were mentioning before, um, frequently you learn something as science maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, and then the science evolves but you if unless you're exposed to services like what you're providing at edutopia unless you're a lifelong learner who's continuing to revisit these things that that knowledge can get crystallized to the point that you're not able to revisit it and what was once true is in fact no longer true doesn't mean science doesn't work in fact it's the opposite it means that science is working but the challenge i think for educators uh is to continue to revisit things that you learn to be true earlier in your life and be open and flexible to the fact that they may change as the, the body of research continues to grow.
1: Right. Anecdotal evidence is very powerful and mm-hmm. it's very easy to fit uh, science around that. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the brain myths that we're used to that are no longer you like, you know, you only use 10% of your brain mm-hmm. or that, um, uh, uh boys and girls have different brains like one of the one of the studies that came out last year um, mm. looked at the actual um, uh, uh, the actual wiring of, of uh, boys and girls brains as they did math problems and it turns out that there's really no functional difference between a boy's, boy's brain and a girl's brain and that mm. a lot of the differences that we see are actually uh, culturally constructed um, mm. and that what makes a bigger impact um, isn't necessarily kind of like um, how uh, how a boy's brain is wired versus how a girl's brain is wired, but our own cultural assumptions and attitudes mm-hmm. towards boys and girls in math and science, and mm-hmm. that has a much bigger impact. And kind of one of the one of the counterexamples we see is that you know this idea that boys are better in math isn't true across you know all countries. There are countries where we see parity or even girls doing better in math. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I. To me it's really great that we have these assumptions about how the brain works and how learning works um, and science every year um, sheds new light on our understanding and helps us makes us revise our thinking makes us revise how we understand um learning um, and i think for example learning styles like we were talking about learning styles earlier i think learning styles is a great example of that and um you said something like you know uh, does learning styles exist and to me that's, that's, kind of, that's the question people tend to ask, you know, does learning styles exist? Are learning styles real or not? And to me, that's, that's really the wrong question. Um, because to me, we define learning styles in whatever way we want to define learning styles. It's not like a, an actual thing that you can mm-hmm. study in the human brain. So mm-hmm. learning styles exist, exists if you say it exists. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it's real. Um, for me, the better question is, is there anything that a teacher can do um, with respect to learning styles? And mm-hmm. the answer turns out to be no. Um, when, when we try to align instruction to a particular learning style, uh, it turns out that we tend to be, uh, tends to not have any uh, positive benefits for students. Mm-hmm. That if mm-hmm. you think a student is a visual learner and you present only kind of like pictures and images to them, that isn't necessarily better than um, showing them a multimodal way uh, mm-hmm. like showing things multimodally uh, because we know that learning things in multiple ways uh, helps students encode the information better. Um, yep. So I, for me, it's almost irrelevant whether or not learning styles is true. Uh, what's more important is, is there anything we can do as educators
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: to help students? And it turns yep. out that actually learning styles can uh, actually be uh, harmful because right. if you start to label students as a you know, visual thinker or, A kinesthetic thinker or learner Mm -hmm. um, you can potentially box them in um, or um, possibly even worse they can develop a kind of a fixed attitude towards that type of learning where they think oh you know since I'm a visual learner I'm not gonna even bother with all these other types of learning Um, so I mean you don't want to categorize students and to box them in and to label Mm -hmm. them because that Mm -hmm. can be harmful Um,
0: yeah 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 no it's fascinating stuff Um, what, uh, how do you stay abreast of all this stuff? So you're, uh, you're pulling stuff out of, out of midair on the fly uh, right now, a lot of research going on. Um, obviously, one way for the rest of us to stay uh, abreast of what's going on in uh, educational research is to follow folks like yourself. But are there any tips you have around uh, like resources to look at or ways to stay uh, frosty, I like to say, ways <laughs> to stay uh, alert and aware of what's going on around you?
1: Yeah, so I think for, um, probably the best tip for me is to subscribe to newsletters Mm -hmm. because then the information comes to you. Uh, The information is kind of curated in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So you don't have to worry about, because for my position, like I went, if if I write an article on one study, I've probably looked at, you know, 20 or 30 studies. You know, I've decided not to cover 20 or 30 studies Mm -hmm. um, or even more. so like, the, I go through quite a lot to find a study that I would like to report on. And that's not mm-hmm. something that you want to do as a teacher because mm-hmm. you know, your time is precious. Right. Uh, you, um, unless it's specifically part of your job, like you, know, you teach educational research or something, you mm-hmm. probably don't want to go through you know, all the different journals, go through all the different studies. It's a lot more helpful to go to, uh, to sites like Edutopia who mm-hmm. will do that for you. Um, mm-hmm. So I like news others, uh, you know, for example, like NPR, Education, MindShift, mm-hmm. EdWeek, those are, Hackinger, those are really good sites um, mm. because they have a really high bar when it comes to reporting on on research. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and it but, reminds me also of the idea of, uh, you know, digital literacies too, like, so understanding, you know, getting back to the idea of fake news or fake science, you know, like trust your sources, you know, go to primary sources when you can. And if you don't have the time, because many of us are, are busy, uh, particularly if you're a teacher in a classroom, you know, find trusted curators who, uh, who you know, uh, are doing good work. So, and that's also something that I have found, uh, you know, folks like yourself are somewhat generous, uh, you know, both uh, in terms of what you're providing, but also in saying, like, we're not the only people who are providing this type of value. There are there are plenty of services out there. And uh, you know, playing with your head up and having some savvy around uh you know what doesn't necessarily pass the the smell test uh in terms of something just pops up in your feed from a source you've never seen before and you can't there's not even a citation of the primary research that it's based on, you know, if you do a little bit of digging. Um that's certainly a red flag. Um
1: yeah, I mean so so often I uh an article come, comes across on Facebook, you know, or, or mm-hmm. Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and on its surface, it looks like a, a good study. Um, mm-hmm. like this, this actually happened pretty recently. There was a study on air quality and, uh, the study was looking at, um, so in a, in a California city, uh, there was, um, uh, there was a uh, gas problem. Um, so, um, uh, the, the, the city, in response, decided to uh, to install air filters into schools to try to counteract the gas, the gas problem. Um, but what what turned out happening was that by the time they actually installed the air filters, um, the gas the gas problem was gone because it took like you know a year or so. Um, so this gave uh, researchers an opportunity to kind of investigate whether or not air filters can improve test scores. You know, if you look at the you know the the radius um of schools inside you know the uh, nearest uh uh the gas facility that had the leak um compared to those outside of the radius um so this was widely shared um and it, it, on on its surface it looked like a good study uh but when i read it more closely and when i read the actual study there were like pretty fundamental flaws uh with the study itself mm-hmm. um like it, the the sample size is really small, the data points, there are not enough data points. Um, it, it was a very controversial study. But if you, if you just read everything uh, on Facebook at face value, mm. you can get tripped up. It, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's much better to um, either have the first-hand information uh, to be able to analyze the study or to look at um, sites who do uh, vet information like Aristopia. Yeah
0: yeah yeah i mean it's it's really an age where we all need to rely on trusted curation and finding those sources is is so critical because uh, no one has time to to really do the the hard work of vetting all this that you're doing you know so like you have time, but not everyone else does so so that's why it's great that you're doing this work and it's important for people to to find those opportunities uh we're coming close to time, so I would love to you know, we talked about looking backwards. Um, I'd love to get your take on what might be emerging. The 2020s are, are just starting and uh, it's very futuristic sci-fi. We're ready for flying cars and, uh, and Matrix-style educational downloads. So uh, those things may be a little bit beyond the pale, but uh, what, uh, what's exciting your imagination around uh, the trend lines that we're seeing heading into the, this next decade?
1: For me, what's exciting is the science of learning. Uh, which is making more connections between how students learn uh, to h- how we understand how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, so making connections to like cognitive science, to psychology, mm-hmm. to neuroscience, mm-hmm. and really getting gaining a better understanding of um, making better connections between uh, what's happening in the classroom and what's happening outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. So for example, we've, um, right now we've heard a lot about ACES, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and we mm-hmm. know that Um, the more ACEs that a child experiences, uh, the lower the chances of their success as adults. We know that what happens to a child um, has an impact on uh, their life outcomes down the line. Um, But all of that has been observational. A lot of that has been just like observing, you know, groups of people uh, looking at what's happening, you know, um, from like zero to 12 uh, years of age and, you know, the outcomes as they're adults. But what I'm excited about is that we're getting, gaining a better understanding of how the brain works, how brain development happens and how um, things like relationships uh, it's not just this kind of like this nebulous idea that relationships are important. but We're actually seeing that, you know, when, when kids are young and they have their, um, in a safe supportive environment with lots of healthy relationships that their brains actually develop in a different way compared to if they live in poverty or mm-hmm. if they live under trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's exciting is just having a better understanding of how things like, uh, trauma, um, can inform, uh, education and teaching and learning. Um, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. And, uh, and, uh, it does seem like we're, we're sort of on the precipice of meaningful breakthroughs in terms of actionable, you know, like getting back to the mission of Edutopia, actionable insights about how the brain operates. So like rather, you know, there's, there's always been really interesting research. Remember, I was also a, a psychology uh, student uh, growing up and, uh, you know, split brain research, left right brain, left brain, like all that stuff is fascinating. But when you think about the practical applications, frequently there wasn't as much of a way to connect that. It does seem like we're on the the verge of making more of those types of connections in uh, in the coming years. And uh, and that certainly is uh, is exciting. Um, Any other trends that uh, that you're you're noting, uh, whether it's within education or more broadly, that you think uh, are worth uh, paying extra attention to or any any recent research that you've seen, uh, you know, 2020. There'll be a 2020 year in mm-hmm. review at the end of the year. You know, January is almost, almost under our belts. Um, anything uh, catching your attention that you wanted to, to share with our listeners before we wrap up?
1: Yeah, I'm excited about AI, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. Mm-hmm. And um, this, is, this is a pretty tricky um, kind of topic because um, there's kind of like, for me, there are different types of AI. So there's kind of the more... Kind of obvious AI, um, which is kind of like the robot in front of the classroom doing the teaching, and that's that's kind of the way AI is portrayed often in, in media. Uh, kind of like we should all fear AI because it's going to take all our jobs away. But for me, like that's that's kind of it's a it's a straw man. It's it's like a boogeyman. It's not really what AI is about. For me, what's exciting about AI is being able to understand large sets of data and um, understand patterns in that data. Um, For example, um, let's say uh, you want to understand and predict um, whether or not a student will drop out of high school. Like currently we have pretty um, uh, either crude tools to do that, or highly intensive tools to do that. Either you know, you're sitting down with, with a student, talking to them, getting to know them, or we have like really crude um, data points, uh, you know, like grades um, and attendance. But for me, uh, one of the uh, promises, not promises, one of the potentials of AI, what makes it promising is that it can help us uh, better understand and predict and analyze um, large data sets. So for example, if you're looking at uh, a group of students um, and you're you're kind of churning through all the data, like what patterns can we see in the data? Not just looking at like test scores and attendance, but what patterns can you see in terms of like, you know, um, like how, uh, like what kind of uh, supports do they have in the family? Like what kind of uh, experiences they have as in, in their childhood? Um, what kind of patterns can AI predict um, that will help us maybe better anticipate um, kind of um, uh, uh, issues that we might find with students? Uh, That Mm -hmm. way we don't necessarily address those issues, but it can help us kind of reveal patterns uh, help us better understand like okay who might need a little bit more help who might need more support who mm-hmm. should we like pay a little bit of extra attention to because it's really hard you know if you have a classroom with 30 students and you have five classrooms it's really hard to you know pay full attention to 150 students but I'm yeah. hoping that down the line uh, we can have more tools to be able to you know not let any students fall through the cracks and I think mm-hmm. AI can help with that um, yeah maybe, maybe not catch,
0: g- catch some of that stuff early too right so like rather than frequently by the time an intervention is 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 clearly needed. It's almost too late. And right. if the behavioral patterns and the data points that you're describing can can signal things early enough, so that if the right kind of intervention can can be done, there there certainly is a lot of promise to that.
1: Right. Um, so I mean, for me, ultimately, it's really about uh, helping teachers become more informed mm. and giving them kind of a better understanding um, of of their students.
0: Yeah. Fantastic conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time, uh, Yuki. If folks want to follow you or understand what you're doing at Edutopia, what would you, what's the best way for them to uh, stay on top of all this?
1: Oh, so I'm on Twitter, Yuki Tarada. Um Just one word. Um, and um, yeah, ask me any question on Twitter. I'm always happy to answer.
0: Awesome. So uh, Edutopia is a great resource, uh, particularly for K-12 educators, but for folks who are just interested in learning and research and education, uh, I'd certainly recommend it. I'd also recommend uh, Yuki's work. And uh, thanks again, Yuki, for, for joining us. Thank you, Mike. And, uh, and for our listeners, we'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.